to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvind, and through the magic of the internet, I am joined by Michael Nesbitt, professor of law at the University of Calgary. And we're here today, uh, it's a sad anniversary, actually, it's January 29th, uh, 2020, and uh, it's the anniversary of the Quebec mosque shooting. So I just want to start off today's episode by remembering those six individuals that were killed in that incident, Khalid Belkassami, Azadine Sufyan, Baker Tabeti, Ibrahima Barry, Mamadou Tanu Barry, and Abdul Krim Hassan. I apologize if I got those names wrong, but uh, I thought it was important to remember those individuals killed in Canada's worst terrorist massacre since 9-11. Uh, but it's also fitting today because Michael has been doing some really interesting research um, some, you know, kind of, it's interesting, it's almost criminology, but it's empirical legal research looking at the hate crimes and terrorism landscape charges. And it does reveal some interesting ideas. And this actually comes uh, as well as, you know, as much as it is the anniversary of the Quebec mosque shooting, the individual who was uh, eventually pled guilty to those murders, um, this what I think is frankly a terrorist act, uh, is now appealing the sentence that he was given. So we can talk about that today as well. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure as always, Stephanie. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your project and what inspired it? Sure, that's a great question. Well, as you know, and, and some of your listeners who go back might know, we talked maybe a year or so ago about a different project I was working on, and that was trying to really less for me, but more for my students and then some people working in the area, put together a list of the terrorism cases, you know, who had been charged. At the time, we had a, a list from the public safety that said 54 individuals. I think at the time is probably up to about 56 or 57 now. Individuals have been charged, but we didn't know all of those names. And in some cases, understandably, uh, what cases had, I thought it was good. We were coming up on the 20th anniversary of 2001, which is December 18th, 2001 is when we passed our Anti-Terrorism Act 2001, which is really what brought into the criminal code all the relevant offenses in terrorism. So it's our new terrorism section. Right. And just I, we, We've talked about this a million times, but it's worth just re-saying the, you know, we didn't actually have, like, other than kind of some of the terrorist offenses that were in international you know, uh, treaties such as civil aviation treaties. So there really wasn't a proper terrorism offense in Canadian law, as we now know it in Section 8301. That's that's right. And so that became a really big deal when we saw, for example, that one individual eventually convicted for manslaughter out of the 1985 Air India bombings. <clears throat> Getting back to the impetus for the project, when I put those numbers together, that, and it remains true, that 54 of the 55, and now I want to say it's 55 is 56, or 56 or 57, what, however many there have been since, almost all but one charge have been against an individual who is best described as Al-Qaeda or ISIS-inspired terrorist. And so that, you know, makes a lot of sense with respect to the foreign fighters and some of the things we've been worried about in Canada, the threat levels, uh, what the security intelligence agencies were telling us were the threat levels. But obviously, it was also this research is happening in 2017, and we were about two years into hearing about the threats of far-right extremism. And to be really clear, at the time, I wasn't. What, what shocked me was not just the lack of far-right; it was that one of the first groups to be listed in our criminal code was also Hezbollah-associated groups. 
And we know from intelligence reporting publicly in Canada that there's concern about funding of Hezbollah in Canada. Of course, one of the big criminal code provisions to come in after 2001 was our financing provisions. And so to see no financing charges for someone associated with Hezbollah was also surprising. So, and, and just to be clear, it's my understanding, like this is just Canadian law. These are international obligations that are set out by the United uh, Nations Security Council. Yeah, that's right. And that was really, that was a big part of the impetus for us to bring these in. So what, what we ended up with is a series of terrorism offenses that over almost 20 years applied to essentially one group of individuals. So we have these predicates almost for terrorist activity, which is defined in the code. And one of the predicates is that the crimes are committed if, if it's a terrorist offense, which, which includes a, the predicate terrorist activity, is that the crimes are committed with uh, ideological or religious motivation. And so what I noticed coming out of this paper was really we've been talking about terrorism only with respect to that w one particular ideology. And that was surprising because there are a number of ideologies that one might expect to fall within terrorism. For example, Hezbollah. Uh, we had seen an increase over the previous couple of years, a, a great increase in far-right extremism, and we didn't see any of that. And of course, this, this did come to a head in the tragic incidents uh, of the mosque shooting involving Alexandre Bissonnette, when you saw an individual who, by all accounts, had an ideological motivation, who went in, who committed an act of killing other people, and yet was not charged with terrorism. And we've talked, I think, on the podcast about some of the reasons why that might not have been the case. But that's not the sole case like that. So I'll, I'll give you a couple other names. Uh, Richard Bain was the individual who attempted to kill Pauline Merois uh, a number of years ago and ended up killing a lighting technician. Uh, he a clear political motivation. In fact, he was going to a political rally. Uh, Justin Bork is another name that might that, that the listeners might be aware of. And so these are not people that I'm saying are, are you know, necessarily terrorists, but they're, they're ones you start to ask, wait a second, that looks like an individual who has committed a violent act for religious, ideological, or political motives that had the intention to intimidate the public, and they went through with it, and they're not being charged with this. Right, so, and Justin, because Justin Bork, he, just for the people out there, he was someone who subscribed to what's often described as an anti-government ideology, right? Like something similar, not perhaps identical to, but something similar to the Freeman on the Land, the Sovereign Citizens Movement, uh, had posted very political things on Facebook, uh, not always, you know, let's say coherent, but definitely had a political view and a political worldview. Yeah, I mean, he had, he had written stuff about his political view and worldview. It was no surprise that he he wasn't going after anyone. He was he was involved in a shootout with the RCMP, with the state, with state officials, uh, security officials as well. So what what prompted this then was these these very questions. So so why is it that we're calling someone who walks into a mosque and shoots six people for political reasons murder, and we're calling preemptive actions? Uh, say with respect to the Toronto 18, who didn't who had a lot of plans, but didn't follow through with anything terrorism. Uh, why are we not calling what Justin Bork did terrorism? Is there a good reason for that? Is it a bad reason? Is it is it a little bit of both? What is it? And so I thought the the most interesting one to look at, given these the, what was in the media, what people were really talking about in terms of the the threat environment, and our, our friend Jess Davis might 
disagree in terms of thinking, well, the financing is really important and certainly doing something with respect to Hezbollah, and she's not wrong on that. Uh, but what's in the media right now is the far-right extremism. And what I think Canadians are worried about is far-right extremism. And so, so that was really the impetus for looking at this. Was, so who, how are we prosecuting these people then? What are we doing to, because they are being prosecuted, uh, how are we charging them? What's the difference? And, and maybe looking at why there's a difference in terms of the charges. See if it right. holds up. Exactly. So, I mean, so this is, it is really interesting. And so you've kind of, like, I got to see the draft of your paper and hopefully it'll get published soon. But um, the thing about the paper is that, so it kind of divides, you divide it into the two categories, right? You have, like, your people who've been charged with uh, terrorism offenses as exists in the criminal code. And then individuals who've been charged with hate crimes or where hate aggravated the sentencing. And I want you to break that down. And one of the things that I think is, you know, that you note in the paper is that actually there is no hate crime on the books. There's hate speech and then hate can be considered as an aggravating factor uh, in a sentencing, but there's no hate crime per se. So can you basically then walk us through what, um, like, uh, what hate looks like in the law? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you, it, to answer the question, I can say it, it presents a methodological problem for people like us who find that stuff kind of fun, that being academics. But the real world explanation for that is I can't just go out there and look up all the terrorism or all the hate crime cases. So I can go to StatScan and say how many hate crime, uh, how many incidents, hate crime incidents have there been or, or what are being reported as such. But that doesn't give me any detail as to what they are, whether they proceeded with charges. And so we've seen they reached an all-time high in the most recent stats I've seen in 2017, and there's no indication that that's sort of tailing off. So we know that in general, the incidents in public are increasing. But we can't, I can go to the terrorism offenses and say, okay, this is how many people have been charged with facilitating a terrorist activity. But I can't go, as we've already said, to one particular section of the criminal code and say this is a hate crime. So if I'm looking at what we're actually prosecuting people for in terms of reported decisions, I have to come up, we have to come up with a different metric. And so there's a couple options on the table. So one is hate speech. That's probably the most obvious, and that's section 319 of the criminal code for your listeners. Another option is to look at sentencing decisions. And so there it's again, there's you know going to be some limitations of study. You're not talking about people who are charged and then let go, you're only talking about people who were convicted and then sentenced, or not those who maybe didn't have reported sentencing decisions. But from those, you can look at it because section, section 718 2A1 of the criminal code, and it makes mandatory the consideration of hate and whether it played a role in the, in the crime. And then it would be an aggravating factor on sentence. So when you go through sentencing, We'll get into the details, but you look at a number of things, and one of the things that you get to at the end is you sort of think, hey, let's look at this individual and let's say what mitigating factors are relevant, and some of them are going to be personal and some of them are going to be listed in the code, and then we're going to say, and what are the aggravating factors? And so one of the aggravating factors would be hate. So we can sort of pull out the cases then where an individual has been sentenced and the judge has said it was an aggravating factor, hate was an aggravating factor in this case. And then just because I didn't trust that to cover everything. And I'll tell you why I didn't trust it. And this is interesting because hate was not an aggravating factor in all of the terrorism trials. That that came as a bit of a surprise to me. <laughs> I, I would have thought that some- Usually, 
yeah, usually you're doing it for a hate reason, but yeah, I mean, there's an ideology, but it's sort of hateful if you're trying to kill a whole bunch of other people is my general position. So, so that was interesting, but, but you know what? Terrorism is also aggravating at the sentencing stage. So if there's evidence of a terrorist offense, that is aggravating at sentencing and not all sentencing decisions have considered that an aggravating factor in charges of terrorism. So I don't know how that works. It doesn't because it's mandatory consideration that's not being considered, but it does make me think we're not going to capture every time a individual, we're not going to capture with when the judge mentions hate, even though it's mandatory that they do so, they still might not do so in some cases where there was hate. And so the other thing I then looked at was, and the, the one we've already talked about, the Bissonnette case is a great example of this. Some of the big cases in the media where the specter of terrorism was raised, but where something else was charged. And Bissonnette's a great case because terrorism wasn't charged. Terrorism wasn't aggravating upon sentencing, which is something I thought it might be. And I believe the judge didn't use hate aggregate as aggravating upon sentencing either. So, so words, right. So, yeah. So in other words, that uh, basically um, in, in these cases, we saw media reporting as to, you know, people asking, well, Justin Bork seems to have had this worldview. Is this actually a terrorism case? So then, like, you know, the, that would provide some kind of hints that maybe this was a crime that could have perhaps been considered as uh, a terrorism offense or perhaps a hate crime. So the results of all this is really the technical term is just mashing it all together. Right. So it <laughs> may not be a total comprehensive analysis of every instance where someone was hateful with a far-right ideology or, for, or with another ideology for that matter, but it's the sort of the best approximation I could come up with. with right, okay, who, but, but we don't have the statistics, so you have to come yeah. up with some kind of methodology. It's not perfect, but at least that can, you know, you have a an approach that at the very least can give you data, which at least gives us a, a glimpse or a picture into what is actually occurring in trials across the country. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I'm hoping that if someone can do it better, then, then you know, be kind to me, but please do it. <laughs> and, and we'll Academics get, we'll get even better kind. data. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that, um, so it's interesting you say that because, I mean, one of the things that Craig and I have talked on the podcast before was the sentencing of Alexandra Bizanet, where the judge, I believe, came out and said there was no evidence that this was a racially motivated crime or any kind of, you know, hate crime or anything like this, which kind of beggar's belief. Um, it was kind of a shocking thing to read in the sense that, you know, um, there was actually pretty good evidence presented that this was someone who consumed uh, far rights uh, or al- alternative rights. Uh, media uh, was absolutely fascinated by it and uh, picked a religious institution upon which to actually conduct attacks. And this strikes me as pretty decent evidence that this is someone who had a worldview that if it wasn't terrorism was at least motivated by some kind of hate. Yeah, it's it's an interesting and I'll, I'll take it a step farther and say I, I never really got past the how he wasn't charged with terrorism if I'm being honest. And I understand that there are good reasons to do that. He got a longer sentence for murder than he would have gotten for terrorism. He It was an easier trial. There They weren't worried about a number of factors that would have come up in terrorism would probably save the public a lot of money. So I, I understand there's a, a counter argument, but this is a pretty clear case of terrorism to me. And given the numbers I had started out the podcast with, I, it still surprises me that we, we didn't see that one there. So that I, I don't even get past, I don't even get into the hate. I just can't get past that the charges in the first place didn't, or at least at sentencing, they didn't say it was aggravating for terrorism. 
Well, I want to get into those reasons because, you know, I want to get through the numbers, but, and then we can maybe talk about why this situation is the, the way it is. I mean, what I'll note is that um, Alexander Bizanet was sentenced, I believe, to, uh, to 40 years. 42, and I think it was. 42. 40 or 42. Strange calculation that the the judge ended up using. He's now appealing, and he now wants the uh, the possibility of parole uh, after twenty five years because I think he was denied that. So he want he wants an even lesser charge that basically that would that would kind of take his murder charge down from having murdered these six individuals to having only really in effect murdered one. Now, and what's interesting is the crown, which I believe originally argued for 150 years, is actually arguing for an augmented sentence that he would at least serve 50 years without the possibility of parole. So it'll be interesting to see what the Court of Appeal eventually comes up with. But okay, so that's that's kind of the context to your projects, the law. Um, why don't you delve a little bit into the numbers and what you came up with? Sure. So I, I think they tell an interesting story and I don't have all the answers, but I'm hoping other people can follow up with some of the answers. So we, and we can get into some of the possible implications and, and that I can probably fairly name some of the possible implications. The question will be what sort of guiding things here and what should we do about it in the end? So the numbers are, as I said, almost all but one charge for terrorism in Canada has been associated with ISIS or Al-Qaeda inspired terrorist. Every hate speech crime in, over the same period, so starting in December 2001 until now, all, there's been 20 of them, so I didn't count this month. I stopped the stopped the clock in in December as well, starting so the December to December. Every one of those I would describe as a far-right extremist or exhibiting a, not necessarily a, a far-right extremist, but exhibiting an ideology that was consistent with what you'd associate with virtually any definition of a far-right extremist. So, so the most so, common... Yeah, I was going to say, so like either white supremacy or anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, uh, male supremacism, all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And almost all of those ones were Islamophobia or or anti-Semitism. So we're, so we're seeing a, a complete inversion as between the two, right? Whereas, so we're charging terrorism as Al-Qaeda inspired, and we're charging hate speech right now as consistent with a far-right ideology. Right. Okay. And yeah. um, correct me if I'm wrong, but even someone like Alec Manassian, who conducted the van attack, he's also not charged with any kind of terrorist offense. He is not, no. Right. No, and we do have we do have a couple of those uh, those as well, particularly in the sentencing ones, right? That have a gender element, or yeah. But actually, speaking of gender, that was the other thing you found is that the vast majority of these cases are all male. All men. So in on the hate speech one, it's all men, which again is an interesting parallel to the terrorism because the terrorism. I think I found it was it was somewhere around ninety percent male which is, again, going back to our friend Jess Davis, you know, she has an estimate in one of her books that would say you would expect about 23% of terrorist involvement is female. And I think, I think it, I might be right in saying she has mentioned since then that it might even be a little bit higher than that. So 25 to 30% you might expect. So much lower percentage in Canada in terms of those ultimately prosecuted, much higher percentage of men, almost all men. In terms of the hate speech, it is 100% men. In terms of the sentencing, so the hate as a bias at sentencing, it is all men save one. And that one is an individual called Lindsay Suvenera, who, uh, who was involved in a 
planning an attack in Halifax. Oh, this was um, some kind of chemical weapon attack with her paramour or something like this. Uh, yes. In Halifax. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, I mean, I wasn't, I was aware of that case when it happened. I wasn't entirely sure what the ideology or motivation was. So it's interesting that it kind of may fall into this category. It, it may. That was an extremely complicated, when we talk about complicated ideologies that are not consistent, but that was certainly, from what I've read, uh, that was one of them. So I guess the other question then is like, because I guess the other, the other idea I had, so if all hate crimes are white and almost exclusively male that we know of, there's very few to no cases where individuals inspired on the Al-Qaeda to ISIS extremism, you know, ideology yeah. were charged with hate crimes. It's, yeah. it's always a terrorist offense. Yeah. Or if it isn't, it isn't a terrorist offense, it just doesn't come up that, the, that this category doesn't uh, of individual, shall we say, just doesn't seem to be charged with hate crime offenses. They are charged with terrorism offenses if they are charged. And, and one thing I haven't thought too much of, but it, was interesting to me in watching Bill uh, C-59 now that was passed in June of last year, finally. Yeah, we noticed. Yes. We noticed, yeah. <laughs> in, in watching that, it kept the terrorism speech offense in the criminal code. But modified it. it. But modified it. Controversially. Controversially. But it did not include any, for lack of a better term, of the defenses that have been included in the 319 hate speech section right so uh, if the trend continues you would then not only have one particular ideology charged as terrorism and another particular ideology charged as hate speech you would also have certain defenses available to the hate speech individuals who are charged that are not available to those who are charged with the terrorism and some of that you can understand. So one of the uh, defenses is, is honestly, I want to say it's honestly held religious belief. And sincerely held religious belief. Sincerely held religious belief. So that's a defense to the hate speech, but that is not going to be a defense under the terrorism. Okay, so this is another way these things can be biased. It, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how that plays out, but I think that'll be something that's interesting to, to watch. So basically, if you say something like, something offenses like um, all single women should be killed, let's just say. Um, and you said that as a white nationalist, you would have certain defenses available to you that you wouldn't have if you had said that as someone who's believed to have done it for the purposes of supporting Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Yeah, and the law will sort of get into that, right? Whether that's an honestly held, you know, well, belief yes. of the type that we are, you just promoting hatred and violence against someone else, and that. Of course. But but just as is sort of generally looking at it, you start to pile these things one on top of the other, and then sort of look at it, and you say, okay, now these they're starting to look a little bit different, right? And so the next question that you get out of the data we have so far is, well, does is that a problem? Right. So it, it sounds like as we're talking about it, it sounds like that might be a problem. And it certain, certainly makes you think we should look into this. But it might just be the case that it happens to be that the 20 individuals who were charged with hate speech really did nothing more than talk. Right. Right. And so, so maybe it just maybe it's just telling the accurate story. Right. Might be one possible explanation. So you don't want to, you don't want to just say this statistic card this therefore you know bias or whatever the case might be. 
when you look at it at the individual level, it seems that you might say, okay, in every particular case, this makes sense. But when you look at it at the aggregates, right. it seems to point to a kind of systemic bias. And again, and that's something we've talked about on this podcast before, that it's, you know, if, if there is a perception of bias in the law, does that actually harm our efforts to counter terrorism in the long run and then perhaps even maybe prosecute it one day? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely it, right? So you can go through these cases one by one and say, you know, here's why we did this here. And But if you look at it in the aggregate, you start to say it looks an awful lot like one ideology is being charged in one way and another is being charged in another. And then you start to ask questions like, so does that mean that our definition of terrorism is too narrow such that it only captures one particular ideology, which is discriminatory, right? Or alternatively, do we really want to broaden terrorism to have these other to to, yeah. to have a whole host of I mean I don't want to live in a society where anything that has an idea behind it is terrorism either right so yeah. you can be sympathetic to how difficult it is to find that a line that is a fe- effective to both counter terrorism and also ensure that the state isn't too intrusive into sort of the thoughts and speech of the individuals within society and so I think that's where you start to have to look at sort of what the justifications are in aggregate, as well as sort of some case studies and what they might tell you, but also how this is starting to, um, how the numbers are starting to break down and what that might tell us about future areas of study. I guess my next question is, why in your view is this the case? So that's, that to me is the real question. So one thing I'll say about bias is I think, I think anyone within the system is going to be interested in this, right? So especially when you're looking at it in the aggregate, those, you would want to say, oh boy, does it look like there's a problem? And is there, anything we, is there anything we should do to resolve it? So what I tried to do next was look at, okay, why have all these individuals been charged as they have been? What might explain this? And then <clears throat> is that, does, that, does that explanation provide a justification? That is something that would make you feel comfortable with the numbers the way they are. And... <clears throat> there's a host of, I think, possible <clears throat> explanations. So let, let, let me start with this. When In 2001, we passed legislation within about three months of September 11th. The legislation seems to be very effective at capturing the very types of offenses by the very type of people that we had exactly in mind in September 11th, 2001. Namely Al-Qaeda, right? Uh, namely Al-Qaeda. In other words, it's doing exactly what we were doing. This is something we do often in law. Rather than plan ahead, we respond in a very short period of time to a very serious action after it's taken place. I don't blame people at the time, but we had one thing and one group in mind, and we have clearly constructed a regime that is effective because our prosecution rates would suggest we're fairly effective at this, at effective at countering that one thing. The question then is, was it too limited? That is, or was it too tailored to one thing? And that I don't have an answer to, but I think it's worth looking at, right? Because I mean, yeah, I mean, I've always wondered this myself. I mean, the fact is, you have in 2001, terrorism was something that was still very much, in a lot of ways, not not totally, but in a lot of ways, top down. There's manifestos or beliefs or things like this. And nowadays, when we look at some of the movements we've already said on this podcast, so anti-government kind of ideologies a lot of the kind of really virulent misogynistic or male supremacist uh, views, a lot of these are born on the dark corners of the internet. You know, I'm not sure that someone in 2001 could have really 
thought that, you know, the kind of spaces where these individuals would be, uh, you know, hanging out and, and kind of polarizing over time, it could exist. And so I would agree with that. I, I'm not sure that someone in 2001 could have pictured what modern violent extremism would look like today, even if white supremacist movements did exist well before 2001. Yeah, they, they, they definitely did, but that definitely was not the impetus for this legislation. Right. And so when you look, and that's where I come back to the ideology, because to me, when you look at that, you, how do you prove ideology? Well, go to the court cases. It's not, there's not a great explanation in the court cases in any of our court cases so far about what precisely defining ideology. If you go to the social science literature, listen, I'm no expert in this, so I just went to look into it to see if that could help the law in some way. And boy, is it hard to find any agreement whatsoever on the definition of far-right extremism, on what ideology is and what it isn't. Is it just an idea? And so I think what happened at the time was he said, well, why ideology? Well, because these are people who follow a particular set of rules, which are mostly written. They had people who gave speeches and at the time, right, and Bin Laden wrote. And so if you could find the books and you could find the writings and you could find the speeches and you could say we adhere to this and join a group, then it's easy to prove those offenses. When you have a group of people who don't tend to write down, they write down ideas, which sound similar, but don't come from the same place. And they don't necessarily subscribe to a leader. In fact, the, you know, in some ways, one of the best things about the far right groups in terms of law enforcement is they're so difficult to get along with, they can't seem to get along with themselves. They are extremely they're, fractious. That's correct. So they're fractious. They break up all the time. But in, in some ways it makes it harder though, just from like an investigation standpoint, because the, the lone actor <laughs> issue becomes uh, much more substantial. Well, when you get back to ideology, it becomes difficult because now you have fractured ideologies. Right? Yes. You have sort of lone actors or small groups of people agreeing and disagreeing for a short period of time about something, disagreeing about it. They don't really have any documents that they can all agree on that they follow. They just sort of follow vague ideas. And then so you might want to say, well, then an ideology is a bad idea. And that's where you get to my concern, which is I don't want a bad idea to be terrorism because that then implicates almost all crime. Frank. Right, exactly. Right, and right. I don't want to live in a society where all crime is terrorism. So right. so I think one of the things going forward, I think we do need to look at our criminal code offenses again, and I think one of the things we might look at is something that Kent Roach brought up right after these were brought in. And what he said right afterwards was that, yes, the ideological or religious motivation further narrows the overall definition so it doesn't become too expansive, so we don't worry about it but it makes it so narrow that it is very hard to capture anything other than select groups that are claiming to be religious and have writings and leaders and some sort of structure in place. But I do think it's worth at least considering whether this, what role this ideological component is playing. And what's the risk here you think overall from a legal perspective? Well, the risk with the, the legal profession, and we're sort of, we can be a little doomsday sometimes. So the, the risk is that the public loses confidence in the legal system, right? That it looks like we no longer have a sense of what terrorism is. It's just if you do something bad and, and, you're and on your far skin right, color is something yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that is a social problem. It's a legal problem. It's a political problem. It's a, it's a personal problem for those implicated. So this is a concern, I think. And do you think there needs to be change? I, You've already hinted at the fact, and yeah. God knows we've talked on this podcast, like, 
uh, changing this is hard. You know, I've written a piece with Amar uh, reflecting the concerns that you have. Widening the offense poses just some, uh, you know, an equal, if not greater amount of risks that individuals that are engaged in certain kinds of political protests, whether pipelines or environmental causes, could be charged with offenses. We've heard this concern expressed multiple times every time uh, terrorism bills could go through parliaments. That's where I say I don't have a, I don't have a solution. Um, you know, a whole There's bunch of people. We're just paid to point out problems. Yeah, that's right. I just blame <laughs> other people for <laughs> super complicated things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's a good reason to have a podcast is to, to just blame other people. So, Mike, I'm cognizant of your time. Is there any kind of like grand thoughts you want to leave us with, even if we are uh, some academic clouds of, of gloom on this particular topic? So no, no grand thoughts ever from me, but I do have some small thoughts, which is where I'm trying to specialize. And so those small thoughts are one that I, I do think it's time to relook at our crimes, our terrorism offenses. I think it, this is for a whole other podcast, but there was a recent decision about our commission 83.20 offense, again, in this Ali, which I think in practice rules out the possibility of ever prosecuting a lone wolf terrorist with terrorism. Oh, good. Uh, so I think that one's going to have to be looked at. And I think evaluating the role that ideology is playing here. So I don't know what that means. It might mean getting rid of ideology and replacing it with something else completely, but I think they would need to take a long, hard look at that. I think we should also look at, which which I know people always do, but at our investigative and prosecution um, goals and strategies. And so I see that because, you know, in some ways you can say, well, we invented a whole bunch of offenses to deal with Al-Qaeda inspired terrorism, and now they're dealing with Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorism, that's probably not such a big surprise, right? <laughs> Don't get too academic about it, that they're doing what we said they would. And, you know, if you think they were a problem, well, that's been sort of obvious for the last 20 years. You can say the same thing about hate speech. Hate speech came in in about 1970. It, res it was the result of about 20 years of negotiations starting in the 50s. And the negotiation started because there was a concern about the rise of the KKK and neo-Nazism in the U.S. making its way to Canada. And what were they concerned about? They were concerned about individuals um, painting swastikas on moss, and they were concerned about anti-Black and anti-Semitic hate speech. And so that's what we have as our hate speech crime. And then so since then, that's exactly what we've been charging people who... Uh, either do mischief or speak in a way that is hateful, primarily, as we've already seen, against certain minority groups, in particular, historically anti-Semitic remarks in particular. So, again, putting it together, it's you, you've invented two crimes with a very specific purpose to deal with a very specific subset of society. They're dealing exactly with those subsets of society. That's not surprising. The question that follows from that is, but is that okay? And I think the answer to that is, if it continues to be the case that terrorism is really only one ideology, then that's not okay. And so that's where we would look at how can we change it? Is that in terms of investigations and prosecutorial strategy? Is that in terms of reworking the criminal code, which would be my own personal plug? Or is that something else that I haven't thought of and I don't have all the answers? So, so I mean, that's fascinating, Mike. I mean, and I just want to, you know, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and adding a kind of granularity to the discussions that we've frequently had here about, you know, some of the concerns that you expressed. The fact that um, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State-inspired extremism tends to be treated one way and far-right nationalism tends to be treated 
another. So, um, you know, this is good work. I look forward to seeing what you and your army of uh, research assistants come up with in the next couple of months. And I'm sure we'll be linking to it on the Intrepid podcast blog, which you should all read. So thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon, possibly with this other case that you mentioned, which sounds like a whole other headache. I'll just, I'll just going to go buy some Advil now, I think. <laughs> sounds good, Stephanie. Thank you so much, as always.